So you were in Manchester this past week. Yeah, I was there for four or five days. Yeah. And I had the opportunity to do some on the ground reporting investigation. Right. Of one of the one of the things we've covered before. We're actually reporting from the front finally. Yeah, finally this from time. the front. Yeah. <laughs> this was a thing I chose in our last uh, architecture good or bad, I think. Mm. I happened happened to choose it, like a cool house culture thing. Yeah. Yeah. Super expensive. Uh, three times over budget, whatever, uh, culture thing. Culture venue. Culture venue. In Manchester. Yeah. Yeah. Called the factory. Yeah. We were just having lunch now and, uh, you were not allowed to tell me about it so you can have, you could (laughs) tell me about it, uh, uh, live because it's a monetized conversation. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. So, well, the first, the first piece of news we saw was that they changed the name on it. Oh yeah. We saw that before you went. Yeah. Because it was three times over budget. (laughs) Yeah. The naming rights were bought by British insurance company. Right. I think it's British. Aviva. Right. So it's now called Aviva Studios. Is that better or worse? Because we hated <laughs> the factory as a name. Well, the factory is like is tragically ironic because it's a post-industrial yes. Bilbao thing. Calling yes. it a factory is kind of a slap in the face in right. Manchester. And it's also, but it's also a gesture towards the factory uh, history. Y- like the the factory as the art workshop of the factory, the, like Warhol's factory. Warhol's the factory. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, well, I think it is, but maybe it isn't. Being a being a an insurance company, this is like reality check on the naming. Like it's like double finance irony. came in and just like the fire sector just came right. in and renamed it according to like the actual economic reality. The, exactly. Of yeah. No, it's not a factory, actually. Yeah. This is an insurance company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. This is part of the finance sector. I think it was an improvement. Yeah. It's, to call it's, it's it more, Aviva yeah. Culture Center or whatever. Studios. Studios. Yeah. I like the idea that when the, the concept of um, uh, prices, uh, Fun Palace is actually realized. Mm-hmm. First of all, it's not... Actually, the Fun Palace, I, I think it's not going to have all this flexibility bullshit. It's going to be all bullshit. Yeah. I hope you're going to tell me about I'll it now. I'll tell you. And, um, and also, it's just an, a, an insurance company name. I, I love yeah. that. I love, I love it. I, lo- I love everything about this. So the, uh, the building itself, it's uh, yeah OMA project. started in 2018 mm-hmm. and then was like slowed down by COVID stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's got two, two main components. It's got the like a giant rectangular volume called the warehouse, uh-huh. which is like a I don't know how high it is. It's like like seven or eight stories high into your space. Is he trying it's to gigantic. mimic the uh, in, in the hall of the uh, Tate Modern in, in yeah. spatiality? Yeah, yeah, okay. pretty much, yeah. pretty much, exactly. Um, totally new build though. It's not like a re. Mm-hmm. It wasn't actually a factory. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and this is this big rectangular volume is kind of detailed like a sort of a post-war modernist kind of thing, like sort of concrete, um, fairly minimal block, elevated one story off the ground on piloti. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. And then, yeah, the Casa de Musica is just like jammed up against it. Okay. So this kind of like white, Blob, block Me- meteorite thing. is what we Meteorite. call it in Porto. Yeah, um, 
It's like a, it's like a jagged piece of, meteorite. When was Casa de Musica? Two thousand for for two thousand one. Two thousand, yeah. It's like a piece of two thousands architecture junk came through, a, right? Like a portal from the past and landed and smacked. At the time, it was like supposedly from the future. Exactly. And yeah, now it's yeah. from the now past. It's, from it's the great. Past. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it really looks kind of like. Uh, I mean, I think Casa de Musica is made of like white concrete. It needed to be white and therefore more expensive. It couldn't be regular concrete. Mm. Um, this is like whitey. Uh, it's basically white. It looks like aluminum siding to me. Yeah, because it's like hearkening to industrial warehouse cheap construction. Uh, I, I don't think it's an intentional aesthetic choice. No? No, to me it fits along it's not like with... like Favela Chic? To me it fits <laughs> along with the leap-skinned crystal in Toronto. Okay. Which is... I think it was originally supposed to be titanium, mm. but then over budget, it's just like okay. aluminum panels okay. painted gray. Okay. So this to me is is like a, looks like a budgetary okay. uh, decision. It looks Lowered like expectations. Junk. It looks terrible. It looks kind of, it like, looks like junk. Casa de Musica doesn't look good. Right. But this it looks, looks expensive. Like, but at least it looks expensive. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this looks just bad. Is it super flexible and shape changey? And function changey in the way Cedric Price wanted. There is there is a fair amount of it's not not obviously as flexible as as like impossibly flexible right. as Fun Palace was supposed to. Does be. you have a crane with? The but the basic structural architectural thing is that the the proscenium arch, uh, the 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 meteorite is like a, a theater music hall, mm -hmm. uh, and the behind the proscenium arch it opens into the warehouse. So the back, like the stage potentially extends into the massive okay. like hangar-like space. Okay. So the two, the two spaces are connected okay. in a way that suggests some kind of multifunctional interaction. Mm -hmm. In the theater area itself, there's a lot of flexible seating arrangements. The stage can be, you know, extended or shrunk down okay you can take the stage out and have an orchestra pit and move move the stage back okay there's a okay that's support grid that extends over the audience mm. so that you can hang things basically on top of the audience and not just on top of the stage okay so and then there's other like hanging points throughout the space where you could potentially hang heavy equipment so that the audience can be like in, you feel like you're really in the... Or be really scared that something's going to fall on them. Yeah. Because the whole thing looks like it's made of junk. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's also a typical Kulhas constructivist quotation that the meteorite thing is like a Melnikov cantilevered... Right. Uh, another one, yeah. Yeah. Or I guess like, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but... Uh, as I heard someone say while I was there, it's a, a, an important part of um, Manchester and Britain's cultural real estate. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I like that. The aptly named Aviva Studios. Cultural real estate. Yeah. Was the art good? Nah. Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs>
Hi everyone, welcome back. Welcome back, part two. To part two of this uh, complex episode. Mm-hmm. My name is Will. I'm Ricardo. So we're going to start by reading the patron question that spurred this uh, yeah. important theme. Yeah. So we are continuing from talking about the current Venice Biennale as a trigger for a wider discussion on third world architecture. Right. Uh, a theme that was originally proposed. We have uh, been thinking about it already when it came up as a patron comment. So our patron, Whiny Cat, um, quite a while ago, among several questions, posed the following. So I have another question or topic in general for you two. What do you think of the term third world architecture? This is something that I hear mentioned a lot in previous episodes, and since this is a really complex topic, I would love a more systematic answer. The Pritzker Prize in 22 went to Francis Carey, for example. What makes third world architecture third world? What do we think of the high modernist buildings that European architects brought to the third world, like India, in its post-war nationalistic capitalistic development? Does MBS's The Line count technically as third world architecture as well? I hope not. <laughs> Additionally, Frederick Jameson made a slightly controversial point regarding third world liter literature that all third world novels should be read as national allegories, i.e. they should be read as the same meta text of some kind of nationalistic struggle for independence, etc., etc. I wonder what your response to the architectural equivalent of this kind of reading is. Thank you again. Yeah, it's a great, very well-framed question. Yeah. So Winey Cat is basically asking us to explain like our own usage of the term right. to a large extent. Like this yeah. is something that we've been thinking about that's part of our larger historical yeah. uh, kind of picture that we have in mind when we talk about architecture and development, uh, the political economy of architecture and so forth. Yeah, and we tend to use the term third world more than the more far more common nowadays yeah. global south right right so it gives right <laughs> <laughs> and certainly third world uh as used like casually tends to have some sort of negative connotation or yeah, pejorative there is, connotation there is this kind of the contemporary association that third world first second and third world is some kind of ranking yeah yeah exactly right? I mean, the way the way we use it is largely inspired by the way Vijay Prashad uses it, in particular in the book The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World. So I'm just going to read like the opening paragraph of the book, which kind of sets out the significance right. and meaning of the term as he uses it. It begins with an epigraph from Franz Fanon from The Wretched of the Earth, published mm -hmm. in 1961. Quote, the third world today faces Europe like a colossal mass whose project should be to try to resolve the problems to which Europe has not been able to find the answers. And then Prashad begins. The third world was not a place. It was a project. During the seemingly interminable battles against colonialism, the peoples of Africa, Asia, and Latin America dreamed of a new world. They longed for dignity above all else but also the basic necessities of life, land, peace, and freedom. They assembled their grievances and aspirations into various kinds of organizations, 
where their leadership then formulated a platform of demands. These leaders, whether India's Jawaharlal Nehru, Egypt's Gamal Abdel Nasser, Ghana's Kwame Nkrumah, or Cuba's Fidel Castro, met at a series of gatherings during the middle decades of the 20th century in Bandung, 1955, Havana, 1966, and elsewhere, these leaders crafted an ideology and a set of institutions to bear the hopes of their populations. The quote-unquote third world comprised these hopes and the institutions produced to carry them forward. Right. He goes on to talk about and to address Fanon's point that uh, third in this framing, this political framing, meant uh, like the successive world. Yeah, the next one. The next the one. The next world. So there was a European colonial world that was uh, a failure. There was a socialist second world that was running into problems and wasn't globalized. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there was the the third world that would take take off, uh, and it was to the third world basically that the rest of the world would look for right for the future. Like basically, like it, it is a kind of a, a positive the affirmative, of the <laughs> except it's not a laboratory. Except it's, it's not a laboratory. It's actually the, impro- the, the actual world. Um, and it's, um, yeah, it's like kind of an affirmative notion of this is now our turn. Yeah, exactly. It is, now it's us. That's what the third world means. Yeah. Historically. Yeah. And, uh, and that's why we prefer the term third world, especially when we're talking about this period of the, the struggle for independence of the colonies, the, uh, victory of the independence of the colonies at a political level, and then the struggle for full sovereignty. Yeah. That is a struggle that eventually will be lost. Yeah. And the third world, I mean, we also use that term as an, as an historical term. So just the way Prashad right. says, it's not a place. Right. It's a, it's a movement. It's yeah. a project. Um, so, so it refers to an historical movement and political, right. you know, uh, enormous political... Right. Uh, phenomenon, right? Um, so we we would use uh, global south to talk about the contemporary world, maybe. Right. I mean, you could you could possibly, if you would define the third world and the global south in historical as historical periods of a region of the planet. Yeah. Um, the third world being it's the, the period of rise. Yeah. The global south being the defeat and the return to yeah. a kind of a. a, a a kind of a state of systemic victimization, which yeah. is also how, which is why I'm, I guess I'm slightly uh, like militantly, I militantly dislike the term the global south. Uh, yeah, it kind of denies it, agency. Yeah, it has a certain, like the, 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 it, it, it falls into this kind of first world liberal left framework of, yeah, it's, it's the part of the world that is just a, the victim of the global north that's one the other two the other the other issue i don't like it is because it kind of harmonizes the global north right as in like it's not the imperial core of the west that is the bad guys it's the global north which of course as you as is obvious would include like this notion of like soviet imperialism right uh chinese imperialism associated with it and today you would probably yeah. Uh, include like what was obviously a country that founded the third world movement is now promoted to part of the global north probably yeah 
It's uh, and like, and this, this it, is it has this whole notion that if a country of the third world happens to win and become sovereign, then it becomes part of the bad guys. <laughs> right, right, right. It's a essentially subaltern description. Exactly. Yeah. I think. I mean, VJ uses this difference too. I think, and because it, it's uh, he follows up this book with the poorer nations, right. which kind of connects the end of the third world movement up to the present. Right. And he talks about this shift from the uh, post-colonial era to the yep. neo-colonial era. Yep. Um, so yeah, this is an historical and political framing right. of a geographical, right. geopolitical issue. Right. So when we talk about the architecture of the third world, what does what are we what are we thinking of? What are we right. meaning? Right. On the one hand, there's a lot of monumental architecture that's built at this time. Yeah, kind of symbols of symbols sovereignty of independence. And independence. Uh, Black Square, Independence Square in Accra, with the sports stadium there and mm -hmm. the monuments. Um, other sort of monumental sports facilities. Yeah, uh, there's in North North Africa. Yeah, uh, and a the large, Middle East. And the Middle East, a large amount of mass housing. Right. Um, particularly in Latin America. Yeah. What else? Infrastructure, industrial facilities. We would yeah, include like there's, this larger there's, spectrum of like architecture. Yes. Yeah. There's like, in the same way that we talk about the architecture of the welfare state in the first world as a period of like a sort of de-estheticized architecture where, where what is actually important in architecture is happening, as in architecture that is less asceticized and more about the actual productive side of the economy and universalizing a series of both economic development and material improvement of the living conditions of the population. Similar processes are happening in the rising third world in a post, in the political independence context, right? And when you look at what is the uh, general political outlook of the uh, revolutionary leadership of uh, independence movements throughout the third world um, in Africa and Asia, mostly because obviously in Latin America, political independence had already been achieved in the 19th century. And uh, what we had, what, what was present was what ended up becoming present also in the rest of the third world, which is a kind of an, a colonial system of economic inequal yep. relations and not so much direct political subjugation um but but still there is a like the, the same similar processes in latin america of like we want sovereignty full sovereignty economic sovereignty social yeah. sovereignty uh and also political sovereignty even if not in strict independence um but the the the, the revolutionary leadership that then becomes like of these broad movements that then becomes the governments of these new countries after they become independent, they, f they fundamentally have this understanding of like the priority is to achieve full sovereignty, yep. which means decoupling from the relations of an even development that throughout the entirety of the colonial period have imposed on the third world, uh, on the colonized nations have imposed underdevelopment yeah. on those yeah. nations. Um, this, is, this is something that I think we've spoken of before, yeah. but people often don't realize, or people, people uh, associate d 
development with colonialism, right? Which is completely erroneous. Yeah, this is a this is a. And if you go back to the 19th century, um, and earlier, uh, countries like, or regions like India, China, were the economic powerhouse of the world, right. basically. Right. Um, India was the largest textile producer. Yeah. Uh, in the world. And this was systematically destroyed by British colonialism. Um, I think uh, Indian textile production went like com basically completely disappeared because the British wanted to use India as a market for British produced textiles. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it, like the struggle for independence is and sovereignty is not just political nominal sovereignty, but actual actually economic productive sovereignty, right. and that means basically developing production uh, and not being restricted to just uh, low-value commodity exports, yeah, yeah, like raw materials. Exactly. Col colonialism is fundamentally a political economic system of unequal value extraction. It's not just the like direct political uh, subjugation of uh, people of uh, ter another territory. It's not just... It's not just even settler colonialism. That's a variant of colonialism, yeah. like a direct occupation of the land and stealing the land from local peoples. Colonialism is a global system of unequal value extraction from uh, workers of uh, what we today call the global south, funneling that wealth into the first world, into the imperial core. Yeah. The, um, that system is political economic. The uh, fundamental logic... It re relies on uh, super exploitation of labor and extraction of raw materials, and then on selling back to the colonies uh, finished manufactured goods. The, the, the development of industrialization, of industrial capitalism itself in Europe, it is achieved through this process. So the, the process of industrialization of capitalism, or rather the rise of industrial capitalism and of colonizing the rest of the planet, is one and the same process. It's the uh, uh, accumulation of wealth that's uh, stolen from the colonies, uh, uh, enables and facilitates uh, investment and development in industrialization in the imperial core, which then sells finished goods at an extra uh, to, the, um, to, the, to the nations from which these uh, super, exploited, uh, super, uh, super exploited labor and therefore super cheap raw materials were uh, extracted from. Uh, and sells them at a at a premium. Development of the colonies is something that exists only extreme in an extremely limited fashion. Like, uh, and it, it it is one of the things that like scares us about the contemporary first world left, uh, in the way that essentially they have Im internalized that which the right has always said. The right has always defended colonialism with the notion that. Europe is developing the primitive peoples of the world, right? Right. And now, and that has always been a lie. What has always been imposed is underdevelopment. The, the development at most is like uh, in some country in Africa, you build a mine, you, then you build a railway that goes from the mine to a point on the coast when we build a, a port and the ships go there and get the mining stuff mine yeah. stuff to send the, to, the, uh, to England. In England, they build the... 
the, the make the manufactured finished yeah. good, then they send the ship back to the port and sell it at a premium to a local, uh, yeah. to the limited and, and, purchasing and power of local American or Canadian or British capital owns the mine, if, owns exactly. the port, owns, owns the yeah. railway. And and as far as development, actually actual material development goes, it's today is extremely extremely limited there's no development of the territory as a whole there's yeah. no development of a self-sufficient economy that can serve the the population of that country yeah. uh, that provides any level of food self-sufficiency in fact typically food self-sufficiency is destroyed by plantation economies yeah. for like by cash crops what's called usually cash, cash crops um so and and again exactly in india an existing industrial uh, not industrial, but manufacture. To a to a significant, yeah, like la large man large manufacture, but it, it was completely obliterated by by force yeah. uh, in order to turn it into a pure consumer market uh, that would on, on which the 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 British Empire would dump the the manufactured textiles coming from uh, slave uh, produced cotton. Yeah. Um, so. This is the global system of colonialism at a political economic level. And it continues to exist today. Like it's fundamentally identical to what it used to be. There are transformations on it only in the sense that it's becoming weaker over time. Yeah, this, I mean, going back, colonialism obviously goes back uh, hundreds of years and there's been changes in the mechanisms uh, yeah. by which this value is extracted yes. from like directly stealing populations. Right. Um, directly like robbing, like stealing labor, stealing yeah. slaves, stealing, stealing free people labor. and enslaving, yeah. enslaving them uh, to, uh, you know, just unequal extra value extraction through, through wage labor and the different kinds of commodity production you described to more complex uh, kind of debt mechanisms that, uh, yeah. that basically force, uh, Global South countries to privatize and sell off their assets right. to like just capital exports in general to developing countries, quote unquote. Yeah. Uh, by which you know local productive uh, capital can just be owned externally yep. by imperial colonial countries. It's connected, obviously, to imperialism as a as another yep. kind of conceptual framework for understanding uh, what uh, Radhika Desai calls geopolitical economy. Right. Right. We think her work is really yeah. useful in kind of framing framing all this, um, but yeah, the the specific turning point of political sovereignty right around uh, the end of the Second World War right. produced a rupture, where for a period of about twenty years, differing in different places, yeah, um, there were many attempts, also opened up by. Uh, opened up as a political space basically because of the Cold War. Right. Where the the Soviet Union, China, the successful uh, socialist revolutions basically produced a major crack in the overall imperial system right. and created a space through which other countries could emerge into some kind of sovereignty. Uh, it was multipolarity, right? Yeah, the uh, uh, first multipolar... Yeah. Uh, system emerged uh, yeah. if we consider that European colonialism was itself a sort of unipolar system even if there were different empires in competition with each other um, what you have after World War II is a kind of a consolidation 
of the different competing European empires into one single Western empire, essentially stewarded by the United States. Yeah. And that continues until today, uh, which sort of merges all previous European empires into one. Yeah. Um, and you have the, the second pole, of course, but the second pole is of the Soviet Union, but the second pole of the Soviet Union is relating to emerging local, smaller, but local and important polarities uh, that are being achieved precisely through, the, through this class struggle and of, the, of the independence movements yep. in the colonies. And systematically, um, Lukas Steinek is very good at describing these relationships specifically as it goes down to the, the building industry. Um, yep. How, like, Lukas Steinek, check it out, uh, Ar The Architecture of Global Socialism, excellent, excellent book. Uh, and describes how these emerging uh, third world new countries are uh, establish uh, 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 logics of partnership with the socialist bloc, uh, even though they function as part of like the non-aligned movement. Effectively, there is this kind of system of exchange that attempts to produce a sort of uh, alternative socialist world market that is predicated on like mutual development instead of profit extraction, supposedly at least. Um, and there's all these processes of... Called Comic-Con, right? Right. Um, <laughs> not the Comic-Con, the, the good... <laughs> yeah, the original and, and good Comic-Con. The original. I, which one do you think was first? I don't know. Um, Comic-Con. And the, um, the, 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 the... Systematically, what you have is uh, countries from Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, uh, from the socialist bloc, uh, sending out uh, materials and uh, experts with technical knowledge to support uh, new independent nations to develop their own productive capacity, usually. Yeah. And the emphasis is usually placed on that. So you have architects from East Germany and Poland and the Soviet Union and etc. going and helping to establish architecture schools in uh, new nations. Um, so that they can eventually be replaced. Go, they go away then, and the school is now there uh, with the native uh, uh, native know-how. Um, you have uh, uh, the same thing as uh, with engineering and uh, industrial uh, actual industrial capacity, sending in factories that can produce stuff instead of sending the stuff. Um, and third world nations are just replete with uh, projects. Each, each third world nation has always like a, a one or two or whatever signature projects, depending on scale of the nation itself, um, of that it embodies this notion of accelerated development. That is a project of uh, a manufacturing. It's essentially a manufacturing project. It's a project for uh, having a, a factory of some kind that will be able to produce whatever uh, finished goods are most suitable, depending on the raw materials that uh, this nation happens to have, uh, to move away from the, the system of uh, cheap raw material export and continued importation, and, and therefore economic dependency on the former colonial powers. Yeah, and interestingly, one of the main kinds of industrial facilities that were exported from the Soviet Union to third world nations was prefabricated right. uh, concrete panel system factories. Right. So I think uh, Cuba gets one in the early 60s, mm -hmm. I think. Um, Chile gets one. At Chile, gets, Chile one. gets one under Allende. It doesn't last long. <laughs> yeah, Cuba's didn't last that long either. I think they, well, they, they eventually... They replicated it and developed their own facilities. They had, I think, 
like 90 something right. prefab uh, uh, manufacturing facilities. But with the American embargo, it became increasingly difficult to sustain that kind of industrial production. Right. So they kind of fell back to uh, more small scale. Right. And obviously, uh, the Chilean on housing was just shut down uh, by Pinochet. Right. The um, uh, yeah, I mean, developing a construction industry itself tends to be one of the priorities, interestingly. Yeah. And therefore, uh, the the mass housing projects that appear in these nations are often not just about producing like quality housing for the population. Um, they are also about being kind of an excuse, uh, like a trigger mechanism to develop a, a construction, uh, an industrial construction uh, capacity. Because that industrial construction capacity is necessary as a prerequisite for then building the other stuff that comes next. Like you need to be able to build factories to then build uh, the, 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 the next step it's the kind of a first step of industrialization. Um, and so the use of modernism in the post-colonial context has to do with that as well. You typically have uh, a sort of association in the minds of a kind of culturalist, a culturalist left in the first world of um, the persistence of modernist, uh, like a modernist style of modernist, modernist framework for architecture and building in the post-colonial world as a sort of persistence of a colonial outlook. Like it's a kind of an internalization. Uh, Vivek Schieber. Uh, yeah, like it's a, it's a kind of false universality projected by colonial powers yes. onto the rest of the world. Yeah, exactly. Vivek Schieber like formalizes uh, how this, um, how this notion develops. This, this develops later. It develops with, um, with a kind of a, kind of a first postmodern schools of uh, um, of um, what they what is called at the time like the uh, subaltern theories subaltern of the subaltern studies. yeah subaltern studies um, Schieber in uh, postcolonial theory in the specter of capital uh, talks make, makes a critique of subaltern studies of the field in general and its ideological presuppositions and the political consequences specifically about uh, Partha Chatterjee one of the main uh, theorists of subaltern studies that founded the uh, the field, like Schieber says about Chatterjee, that um, he describes these nationalisms, like left independence nationalisms, as a derivative discourse, an ideology that purports to be critical of Western domination, but is in fact unable to escape its grip. Anti-colonial nationalism is burdened by the contradiction that even while it rejects the chief claims of colonial ideology, the ideology of rule, it does so while accepting the foundations on which the colonial masters maintain their dominance. It appears to reject Western domination, but in fact closes off the possibility of escaping it. It is in this respect trapped within the framework it seeks to displace. For Chatterjee, one of the signs that colonial nationalism is still prisoner to Western ideology is its ad adoption of a modernizing agenda for the nation state. So this is kind of a, a more or less general description of essentially the way people tend to think in architecture school still today on like what, like the modernism of the post-colonial nations as a sort of imp still cultural imposition of yeah, this, European models. This, this ideological framework is generalized as we've discussed many times, yeah. 
there's just a generalized anti-modernism regardless of context. Right. So it's it's uh, the same critique in a slightly different form applies right. when talking about domestic architecture yeah. in in Britain. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's just a, a general anti. It's a general postmodern neoliberal right ideological. But framework. yeah, but the, exactly the framework of these like the the actual political content of this kind of opposition to modernism in general is an opposition to material development yeah in proposing in its stead cultural affirmation right and these in the neoliberal in the neoliberal era functions through the rise of the cultural markets which are part of the financial pyramid scheme of production of uh, artificial uh, yeah of fictitious, artificial, capital. fictitious capital um and uh, but it but it is uh, appropriated. It is internalized by vast sectors of the first world left, and not only first world left. Yeah. Uh, as uh, the, like the true liberatory project is the project of cultural change, that is obviously favorite favorite notion of sections of the left that exist in uh, realms of the economy where the production of ideas is. Uh, the main the main activity there all therefore it it dominates academia yeah um Bear talks about explains why he thinks chatterjee's theory uh and in in general in general sense this 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 notion is incorrect chatterjee's theory of nationalism fails in large measure because it denies the reality of capitalist constraints it treats rational decisions as having been ideologically driven and in so doing vastly exaggerates the role of ideas and grossly undervalues the effects of actually existing structures. But that is not all. He's more hostile. Chatterjee's theory is also a quite brazenly orientalist depiction of the East-West divide. It does not merely present the turn to modernization as the, as the product of Western indoctrination, but treats the de deployment of reason rational argument, objectivity, evidence, as Western and hence colonial. In his theory, any nationalist who relies upon reason, by which he means all those faculties I just listed, remains trapped within colonial discourse. Once again, we see rationality, logic, science, and objectivity as being internal to the West and alien to the East, which is, of course, a kind of Orientalist framework. Yeah. But at the time, this meant the superiority of, of the white man. In the 19th yeah, that century. was that was as you said yeah. before. That was the that was the argument made by the colonizers. Yes, and now it becomes an argument by those who support the contemporary postmodern version of decolonialism or anti-colonialism, yeah. which is actually rationality. Only the white man is rational, and that's why they're bad. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So, but the, the, I think the most important part here is when he when Schieber talks about exaggerating the role of ideas and grossly undervaluing the effects of actually existing structures. And the actually existing structures are the political economic dynamics that we are describing, um, which is precisely why post-colonial nations see typically a, their role model for what their national development should be and what their prior, policy priorities should be in the history of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union as a, an example that in the, in the interwar period between the revolution and the beginning of World War II, uh, focused on accelerated industrialization in order and was successful in doing so through socialist, non-capitalist, non-market planned mechanisms through state direction by way of um, 
basically mobilizing the resources of the country to becoming essentially an, a self-sufficient economy that could not only compete economically with the capitalist core, but could also develop the capacity of literal military defense against a potential, and in the case of the Soviet Union, very real, a military attack on its sovereignty, on the continued existence of the socialist project, which happened with the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941, in which was the greatest war in human history up till today. Um, third world nations had this, this was the frame of mind that the leadership of these movements and these governments had in mind. We need to be able to become a self-sufficient economy that isn't being, isn't dependent on the, on the former colonizer. Uh, we need to improve the material conditions of life of our population, and we need to be able to defend ourselves. The capacity to industrialize connects to the capacity to defend ourselves because the colonizer is going to want us back. He's going to want to reaffirm control. We don't know when we're going to be invaded again by, by, by someone from the West. And that is why these processes of accelerated industrialization happen. And all of the architecture that comes out of this, which is a lot, is and needs to be understood within this framework. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, so we talked about housing for a bit as one of the main yeah. uh, forms of this architectural production. So on housing, I found uh, a pretty useful reference book is Mass Housing, Modern Architecture and State Power, A Global History mm -hmm. by Miles Glendinning. Mm. Uh, he's written a fair amount on mass housing and modernism. And he, in, in the book, he explicitly connects modernism, housing, and the state. Right. So he's making an historical, political, economic uh, argument of a certain kind, which is superficially close to ours, although with different implications, let's say. Okay. Um, but it's quite a useful reference book because he goes through uh, many different uh, regions, many different countries, he gives history in, uh, in, in Europe and North America beginning in the 19th century, uh, talks through uh, Latin American mass housing in the post-war period, mass housing in South Asia, in Africa, in West Asia, um, the enormous amount of housing, mass housing built by states uh, in East Asia um, in kind of a later period than the majority of mass housing in the in the third world uh, occurred. Um, he gives a, a useful kind of basic historical framing that like apart from these uh, later East Asian developmental states um, and then particularly China, um, so apart from like South Korea, Singapore, these kinds of examples, mm -hmm. the era of mass housing, state housing, public housing was basically from like the mid 40s to the 70s right. around the world. Yeah. That's when it was happening in Britain and that's also when, when it, was it was happening, happening everywhere else. Like any, anywhere that it happened, it happened in that period. Yeah. And then basically after the 70s with the global economic uh, shift, right. um, there's a shift to neocolonialism in the global south. Uh, the world movement is basically defeated, often with direct like coups, right? Um, and simultaneously, in the 
first world, there's a shift towards neoliberalism and away from the welfare state. The book is not unproblematic, I'd say. <laughs> you have to read it with your um, they live ideo ideological spectacles on, <laughs> ideology detector spectacles. He throws around a lot of ideological buzzwords like bureaucracy, totalitarianism, authoritarianism, um, in a kind of un, in a kind of general way, as if we all know what he's talking about, and he can just characterize, make sweeping characterizations like that. Like it's, is 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 mass housing good or bad? It's not totally clear, <laughs> which is very strange because you think if you're going to devote your life to like uh, producing histories of it. Usually, you should, yeah, usually, usually you have an affinity. Yeah, usually <laughs> the people who like really research a thing tend to like like it in some way or fashion. Yeah, you you get a bit of a. It has a bit of the Foucauldian vibe of like um, being interested in like products of mo modernity, uh -huh. but partly uh, because you think they're evil and you kind of or you kind of like fetishize them at the at the same time as you're critiquing them. Okay. Um, yeah, like the the basic Foucauldian perspective is that like modern institutions are all uh, abuses of power. Right. But I mean, that's the only thing I you want to talk even about. Like <laughs> the category of abuse wouldn't even fit. Like it's just power. It's just power. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But still, like that's the kind of you only want to look at those kinds of institutions uh, right. if you're doing that kind of history. Right. Um, so so is, I, is, all, is mass housing all like a giant phalanx there built between the 40s and the 70s <laughs> around the world? Yeah, I mean, actually, one one of the nice things that comes out of the book and, and one of his ar actual arguments is that mass housing is incredibly diverse around the world. Uh, it's not a homogenous, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, uniform, universal thing. You've got very different political contexts. You've got very different institutional setups. You've got, like in the UK, you've got uh, local governments building council housing. Mm -hmm. In Germany, you've got unions and kind of government, like arm's length uh bodies building housing connected to like pensions and, mm -hmm. and unions you have uh in other places you have like railroad companies um like in india i think you have railroad companies building housing for workers within the within the public railway company right. uh and they're often quite different uh formally and architecturally right uh, so you have like a different politics different institutions different economics, different outcomes, um, and a wide range of, like you have... Within fundamentally the same principle. Within fundamentally the same principle, yeah. And a nice argument he makes is that when this era ends and gives way to the um, the new kind of neoliberal model of state, limited state intervention in housing, which is like... So the anti-bureaucratic, anti-statist, yeah. anti-monolithic. Yeah, yeah which is uh, aided self-help, basically. Right. Uh, where there's, like, funding mechanisms for people to alleviate their own conditions or, like, take out loans to build their own houses or work within the private sector with m some state funding or whatever. The Aravana style. Yeah, basically the Aravana <laughs> style uh, with even less architecture than that. Right. Uh, um Though that model is imposed globally in a universal way. Right. 
and is recommended by international bodies more or less dominated, well, dominated by uh, the United States right. and the West um, and their affiliated NGOs mm-hmm. who all push basically the same program right. uh, for, for so meeting kind of a housing crisis. Top down and by top down means yeah. uh, Washington down, yeah. uh, probably via... Uh, the general, like the uh, UN, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. A bit um, when like global charity housing system. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I mean, arguments like this are quite are quite interesting and and suggests. I think he largely has a positive take on mass housing, uh, but it's uh, the whole thing is wrapped up. And I and to be honest, I haven't even I haven't even read this section. On socialist housing, right. Um, the section on Cuba is quite sympathetic, mm. uh, but I haven't read the section on the Soviet Union right. or a section on China, um, and I am worried about what I will find. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, he, he also has a tendency to frame things in terms of ideology rather than politics. Mm. So a shift from one framework to another could be a shift from like utopianism to something else. Okay. But it doesn't reflect like the underlying political struggle between like classes in class society okay. or within the neo-colonial context where okay. the colonial imperial powers are like backing the military that does the coup. It's not just <laughs> like crisis happened and change of government. Right. So it, it's a, it tends to be depoliticized. But then politics is injected via kind of, kind of ideological abstract, abstract buzzwords yeah. right, like, right. like utopianism or pragmatism or pragmatism or uh, authoritarianism right. or whatever. Um, but yeah, a couple of the, the key points on uh, mass housing in the third world that come out of this is that you have, depending on the the place and often depending on the relationship with the Soviet Union, you often tend not to have industrialized production. Mm. So countries like Cuba with a close connection to the Soviet Union uh, uh, develop their, uh, their attempt at industrialization, industrialized uh, construction, but other countries uh, with very cheap labor, there's no economic immediate incentive to do that. And there isn't a larger um, socialist industrialization program of the same kind, even when there's like in India, five-year plans. Right. um, There's no industrialization of of housing until I think there's some experiments in the 70s. Mm. Um, There is no, like, does India have like a a, a large public sector-led industrialization effort? Not that I know of. Um, and it's not directed. He contrasts it with the Soviet Union that this the, uh, there's no attempt to industrial to develop the industrial base first yep. with heavy industry and then yep. move into light yep. industry. Yep. They begin with light and in, light industry and actually the investment in housing sort of declines over time from right. the initial five year plan right. under right. Nehru. Yeah. Right. Yeah, India has always been a, a complicated case study. Like um I mean, it's 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 one that the uh, Winey Cat explicitly asks about in the context of like 
this discussion about modernism, right? Um, like high modernist buildings, European architects bringing to India in its post-war nationalistic capitalistic development. Yeah, like India never like. I mean, India, like many other post-colonial countries, has um, one of those ambiguous post-independence situations, right? In which you, you in fact have a sort of coalition of forces moving towards independence that in, that uh, integrates simultaneously sectors of what you might call like a national bourgeoisie mm-hmm. and uh, local uh, national working class and the national peasantry, right? And there's this... Um, um, and and in, in in many instances, uh, before independence is actually achieved, before like the immediate political goal of independence is reached, it's even in many instances difficult to be able to tell apart the different constituent parts of a of an independence movement. Like subjectively, the working class of a country and the local bourgeoisie of that country have mutual interests in such a way that they can't in they can't really tell each themselves apart like the you you only become aware that you are that you have this kind of class character when the interest affirms itself in practice right right so um and it, it, it typically uh, sectors, or in like direct civil war like in china basically yeah i mean there's typically you have um like a sector of the national bourgeoisie that makes money off of functioning as a, um, a, a, a local manager of colonial interests. That's what we typically call like a comprador bourgeoisie, right? Um, these are usually the most reactionary, most right-wing uh, sections of uh, national politics of any post-colonial uh, state. But you also have typically sectors of the local, of the of the national bourgeoisie that make their money actually exploiting national labor and selling their stuff in the national market, which means that this section of the bourgeoisie actually needs a a certain amount of purchasing power in the national economy. Like if we were talking about Brazil or India or whatever, you and the bigger uh, a nation is, the more obvious this is because the more p- purchasing power raw capacity exists within the country, uh, you have a sector of capital that is actually antagonistic towards imposed policies from uh, imposed by imperialism that. Uh, ec- increase super exploitation of labor and therefore reduce the, cons- the national consumption capacity. So they have an interest in a kind of ne- welfare state Keynesian type policies that actually increase the salaries of workers uh, in, in of, of colonized workers and therefore decreases the dependency of that economy on the imperial core. And they, prob- they probably also have an interest in extending their production to overseas markets to sell, to actually compete in in global. Yeah, if they produce uh, locally. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's like a local bourgeoisie is held back from becoming an industrial productive bourgeoisie by the colonial system. Yes. Yes. Although, again, if if then their drive becomes exports, um, then cheap labor is advantageous. 
if their drive is local consumption capacity, then they need their salary, the salary of their own workers to be relatively high so that they can buy the stuff that... If they're selling stuff but to they, their they own would, workers... They would want their, their workers to have different. cheap housing. They would want their workers to keep the wages down. Right. And they want to end the colonial system to a certain extent to yeah, actually so enable them. There, there are, yeah. So they would back a national industrial there are, developmental program. Yeah, there are sectors of the bourgeoisie that actually are on the side of independence and that actually are opposed to imperialism. And there's conflict between these two sections of the bourgeoisie, yeah. the pro-imperialist bourgeoisie and the anti-imperialist bourgeoisie. And naturally, as politics develops, the, natural, the, uh, the anti-imperialist sector of the national bourgeoisie allies with national labor, with the working classes of the colony. And depending on which case we're looking at, Sometimes they're more predominant. Sometimes the working class is more predominant. And that means usually that associated with the political character of the, uh, and the political orientation and the ideological orientation of an independence movement, if it's led more by uh, a national working class, it tends to be more socialistic -y. It tends to be led by Marxists, socialists, people who have uh, an interest in developing close relations and get direct support from the Soviet Union, etc., and so on. If it's led by uh, more by uh, sectors of a national bourgeoisie, then it's more social democratic, welfare statey, Keynesian economic policies, etc. But in one instance or the other, a, a lot of the same things apply, like the need for public programs. It's a, the, the, what we've talked about in the, like, what is the welfare state episode, in which effectively there, there is a, a large similarity of policies between a socialist state and a socialist planned economy and the welfare state market economy in the development of a public sector, blah, 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 blah. That just because something is what a welfare state does doesn't mean that it's not socialist. Um, in fact, one copied the other. It's the same thing when we're looking at the policies of post-colonial states, right? Um, countries like India are difficult to place uh, politically because of this like uh, confusing uh, association of interests um, where there is a fairly underdeveloped industrial working class. Uh, there is a very, very large peasantry and there yeah. is a fairly well-developed national bourgeoisie. Yeah, Vivek Chibar has written a book trying to interrogate why India never uh, really became a developmental state the way that um, some countries uh, did. Although when, when you actually look at what countries are able to become developmental, you, you sort of have like two models, right? You have either successful socialist models where you're just existing outside of the imperial colonial structure and you develop industrial development uh, on your own, basically. Or you have localized, relatively small countries which have a function within the geoeconomic, geopolitical economic structure that gives them a local advantage, often with some connection to the colonial system itself. Like, right. Uh, South Korea, Singapore as a local financial hub, services hub, right. um, different different countries that become privileged sites of industrial production as part of the larger kind of American-dominated capitalist system right. in the latter part of the 20th century. Basically, until those those two those were sort of two separate models, and the first one was often defeated politically 
by imperialism, right? Um, as in Chile, yeah. Um, but it was only it was only with China where you get a kind of a fusion between those models somehow, where you get a successful uh, industrialized development with socialism and somehow working within the capitalist system right. of the world right. uh, effectively. So it's, I, I don't, uh, I haven't actually read this book by Chibar. I think I read a book review. But uh, yeah, India was a com complicated context that didn't really fit into one of these, what I'm at least interpreting now is the two kind of dominant models for right. how to become yeah. a developmental state. Right. I mean, India had a period like in, the Indira Gandhi uh, government uh, ostensibly made a kind of a propaganda like posed as attempting to shift into a more socialist public sector driven uh, development model, but it never really actually happened. Um, the, um, and, and, and together with that, interestingly, there were architectural models that were explored in India uh, that sort of appeared as some kind of expression of this, particularly like late modernist brutalism uh, yep. appeared as an expression of that. Like um, the Hall of Nations, right? Yeah. I mean, the, um, it, it, it's, it, it, it is quite interesting, how, like in, in the Indian context, how modernism kind of operates. Uh, obviously, when thing, you think about Indian modernism, post-colonial modernism, you think about Chandigarh and you think about like this new capital, symbolic new capital of a, of a, a new state, a new independent state as a narrow project. Um, invites Western architect to design the master plan. The master plan is a sort of orientalistic uh, plan in the sense that you like Corb abandons the like big blocks uh, of flats and there's like a big, a very wide grid with low, low rise uh, housing districts. Um, but then he has the like massive uh, Corbusian looking uh, office administrative buildings in right. the middle. <laughs> that look very much high modernist or like brutalist. They're not even high modernist looking. They don't really like brutalist yep. looking. Um, and uh, and yeah, it's, it's one of those typical examples that is perceived as like, this is like a colo, it, it, along the, uh, along this interpretation framework of, this is a kind of a cultural colonialism that continues after independence. Um, um, but uh, actually, when you look at the history of like colonial architecture in India, it, like it, 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 India is a really good example of why it's so fraught to try and match uh, form, architectural form, and particularly like modernism versus traditional, uh, to uh, like political sovereignty, cultural sovereignty, or not. Uh, like in Indian colonial architecture like literal colonial architecture built by the Brits, used plentifully uh, traditional forms and motifs. Like it did that all the time. And it hired local craftsmen to do it. Uh, and in fact, it's precisely these, like the logic of like hiring local craftsmen with their local skills and traditional uh, types of things that they did uh, as something that is added and integrated into a sort of classical in general composition uh, architecture like that that is the typical architecture of british colonialism right and it it, it it goes to the to the larger british colonial strategy 
which is usually, um, I mean, it's a very common colonial strategy, but it's a bit different from the French colonial strategy where the Brits would find local uh, pre-colonial sectors of society with their uh, social structures and emphasize them and play groups off each other, often emphasizing pre-colonial culture and actually... particularly local pre-colonial elites. Elites, yeah. And even going to the extent of, I think, like publishing ancient religious texts in order to revive long dead rituals that could be used as a, some sort of social wedge, basically. Right. Um, whereas the French model uh, focused on basically making the colonial subject French in some, in some sense, not, not on like emphasizing uh, traditional culture to divide and rule, but to actually like Frenchify the, the local population. And you see that, we'll get back to India. I just wanted to say, you see that in the in mass housing in North Africa, where you get very similar high-rise HLM type projects um, in, Al- in Algeria or in Morocco, uh, as you'd find in, in France itself, often built by French CIM uh, architects. You don't see that in India, apart from Chandigarh. But even Chandigarh, it's it's low rise. And actually, one of the interesting things, one of the interesting specific differences that Glendinning talks about is that in India, high rise construction is, is almost always for elites and low rise is for working class and lower middle class. Right, yeah. Exactly. Whereas you get like a completely different use of high rise yep. construction yep. in different places. Yep. So you can't associate form with content. Yeah, exactly. In, a, in an easy exactly. way. Uh, and this is actually one of the key concerns of the transition into independence. Uh, the way in which labor is used in construction. Mm. Specifically, right. in re- precisely the labor that is used to inject local traditional elements into the, uh, the colonial building. Um, I have a, a really interesting text by the uh, Labor Investigation Committee in India from 1946, which is operating under the transitional government. So before independence, but as independence was being prepared, already being led by a transitional uh, narrow government. And they're looking at the activities of the Public Works Department of India, how public works are done under the colonial system and what needs to be changed. And I'm going to quote, the most serious problem of labor under the central public works department is the prevalence of subcontract system of labor. From the financial point of view, it is no doubt convenient to government to have the system because it enables government to give the work to the lowest bidder and thus to get a piece of work done cheaply and without much administrative work. However, from the standpoint of labor, the system as it stands today is undoubtedly very unsatisfactory. It is clear that if government cannot abolish the system, it must at least endeavor to put that system on a proper basis so as to improve the conditions of labor under it and to secure for the workers employed by subcontractors the same rights and privileges as those for other types of labor as far as possible. The system of recruitment of subcontract labor is similar to that in most other industries. The contractors advance money to the chowderies the Chaudhrys are the uh, like community leaders, local elites, uh, who then go to the village and procure labor. The Chaudhrys advance money to the workers, who are usually known to them, and bring them to the works. 
the advances are later on recovered from the wages to be paid. Um, it has been laid down that the contractor shall pay to laborers no less than the wages paid for similar works in the neighborhood, stuff like that. That the contractor shall at his own cost provide his labor with huttings on the approved sites and shall make arrangements for conservancy and sanitation in the labor camp. Um, it will be seen, however, that this doesn't happen. Uh, like, so it, it ends up saying that the, uh, a peculiar feature of the Central Public Works Department is that while the department is concerned largely with construction of buildings, uh, so as to provide offices residential accommodation, it has not been able to uh, attend to the housing requirements of its own men, except to a small extent. And this is because of the subcontracted system. And the subcontracted system is predicated as it is built into precisely what you've just described as a way of we're not controlling everything all the way down in the colonial administration system. It's not bureaucratic. Yeah, it's not bureaucratic. <laughs> it's in, it's uh, it, it, it adapts to, yeah, it's not yeah. monolithic, it adapts to the local uh, traditions. It talks only to the local leaderships and the local leaderships then procure means of cheap labor uh, in their stead. And therefore, the actual workers are never are never our workers. Right. Never get, they never get paid directly by the colonial administration. They get paid by their local elites, who then will get paid by the local administration. So it is, it, it, and, and this is how you see this a particular example in India. It's very obvious the, the way in which uh, the British uh, uh, colonial administration favors local elites. It's directly linked to support of, for the traditional caste system that the, the Brits strongly supported. Um, so, and you see here that in the transition to independence, this labor investigation committee is directly arguing, as it said in the first paragraph, uh, if it can't uh, abolish the system, at least put it on a proper basis, as you know, establish clear regulation for how the workers are going to be employed and paid, etc. But ideally, they should, it should even be abolished. Like, they should, these people should just be, the workers should be hired directly by the government instead of going through a local yeah. elite mediator. So, and again, these are the mechanisms through which local craftsmen are hired to build, to, 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 to integrate uh, their local traditions, like integration of local traditions, including traditional forms and forms of of of, of relations of production, of production yeah. is in, is connected with the relations of production. The fact that the buildings have Indianness decorative motifs in them is directly connected to the way the labor is exploited through these mechanisms. Uh, they're kind of one and the same. Um, the um, another uh, interesting. Another interesting text that I found about this uh, by, uh, in, in a book called Colonial Modernities, Building, Dwelling, and Architecture in British India and Ceylon, um, a chapter by Arindam Dutta called Strangers Within the Gate, Public Works and Industrial Art Reform, says, um, the irony was not lost on the newly arrived creators of either New Delhi or Chandigarh. He's establishing a sort of continuity here although both drew on their arts and crafts background to frame this hand-intensive, super-exploited labor in the tactile dexterity of the artisan, with direct overtures to the country's sumptuary arts and crafts. On his part, Lutyens, the yeah. uh, planner of New Delhi, fell back on the established schools and the more immediate legacy of Curzon. Students from the different schools of art were put to work on the murals decorating the interiors of the complex. Their 
output couched as the rediscovery and manifestation of a national rather than institutionalized ethos of handicraft. Mm. So the super exploitation of labor is facilitated by the integration of, tra of local traditions and one legitimizes the other and also not only legitimizes but directly articulates in, mm -hmm. material, in the material mode of production, the other. And then he makes a joke about Corb. Uh, Corb's own ideological predilections, best articulated in the decorative arts today, did not permit him to directly invoke 19th century theories of ornament. He commemorated the artisanal construct in quite another way. Since India was the perfect foil to develop the notion of the autochton in building, a civilizational view that went with his new beton brut aesthetic that he was developing at the time, Workers were encouraged to just leave their handprints on the rough cement finished <laughs> off the concrete. <laughs> there, wow. it belongs to you now. Your 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 identity is expressed in the in the concrete. Um, what a great text, isn't it? Fantastic. But anyway, like so, these the 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 way in which we're looking at these processes is is not cannot be simple. Yeah, and you you can't just go like. Uh, you're imposing modernism and that's colonial when like the previous imposition of like neoclassical whatever with loads of Indian motifs was fundamentally integrated into the very process of colonialism. Lutyens is also like a a postmodernist hero. Basically, yes. As on, a, on top of that. As a, as a non-modernist architect during the modernist period. Right. He's like right. a hero to people like uh, Venturi, I think later right. and becomes right. like the third way that was never taken uh, right. basically during the, the, the period of modernist uh, consensus, more or less. Yeah, and then India then like develops its own internal modernist practices. It has like social, uh, social, social programs, administrative programs, hospitals, offices, etc. Um, the typical... Uh, like projects of a growing government, uh, of, of a growing uh, uh, like civil administration, uh, public sector, uh, of an expanding government, like ruling an, a, a more and more integrated territory. Uh, and uh, yeah, many of them assume, especially as time goes on, start assuming uh, modernist uh, principles, usually designed, not the, the notion that they are designed by European architects is wrong. Uh, most of them are designed by Indian architects who are trained in Indian schools and that work for the central, uh, for the central public works department that develops its own uh, practice of public uh, construction. Uh, there's lots of different uh, attempts at developing mo uh, housing models uh, from smaller scales to larger scales through the public sector. But in the end of the day, it really is the private sector that uh, like the, the, uh, an actual planned economy and socialist public sector never really takes off in India yeah. to the scale of the country that the country requires. And uh, yeah, it becomes a sort of it ends up becoming a, a liberal and then neoliberal yeah. um, post-colonial state. All right, well, we're going to leave it there for now. We'll be back next week with a continuation of this discussion. Mm -hmm. Yep. We've covered, we, we only talked about India. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, this is an impossible task <laughs> in some sense. Uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's go into, uh, into more stuff next week. See you guys. See you then.